and if you would avail yourself of that, you can follow along. Russ, can I get these lights on here? I'm getting old, man, and every, every year I need more light. So uh, other, other older folk have told me that same thing. So anyway, we are going to continue in our series of sermons through the book of Genesis. We are looking at a godly legacy. A few weeks ago, we looked at a legacy that was ungodly. That was the legacy of Cain. Today, we're going to pick up chapter 5, which is a very different chapter. Many times people say, if somebody turns out, is it nature or is it nurture? The answer is yes, it is. There's no doubt that some people have walked up to you and said, you cannot deny that those children are yours. They look like you, they act like you, they have the same mannerisms that you do, and some of those things are definitely passed on. On the other hand, there are a lot of things in life, and I say character is king, because character is the sum total of the choices that you make. And if our children are going to make good choices, they have to have good information, they have to have truth, and they have to have that truth lived out before them. That is the legacy of character that we give to our children. That's the one that can change. I found something, and you may have heard this before, and you may know the names, but uh, I'm going to start with an illustration. How many of you know the name Jonathan Edwards? Yeah, a few of you don't do, and a few of you didn't put up your hand. That's just because you were not uh, with the program there at the moment. But as soon as we get to this, he was a very famous, maybe one of the most famous pastors in the United States from the 1700s. Uh, Sometime after his death, there was a man who decided to trace his family tree. And as they traced the family tree for 150 years after his death, this is what they came up with. They found out there were 1,394 known descendants of Jonathan Edwards. Started out with he and his only wife had 11 children. Pretty good-sized family, but uh, not as big as they could be. Right, Chris? Anyway, but their legacy started with that. Here's what it is. When they did the research, they found hardly anyone that had ever been in trouble with the law. They found that 295 of them were college graduates. A hundred of them were full-time Christian workers, whether they were pastors or missionaries or professors at a Christian college. A hundred of them were lawyers. Thirty of them were uh, um, judges. 80 of them held public office in the federal or state offices in our country, including one vice president of the United States. 75 of them were military officers. 65 or more of them were college professors. Uh, 13 of them were college presidents. And 56 of them were physicians, medical doctors. Not a bad legacy to leave behind. The same biographer decided to do a second study of another man. His name was Max Juke. He had about 1,200 descendants that they could trace. I didn't write the number of children he had because no one's 100% sure how many children he had. Because a number of them were illegitimate. They were not to his wife. But uh, so... 
They kind of spread out a little bit. But of those that they could trace, seven of them were murderers. Sixty of them were thieves. A hundred and forty of them spent time in jail. Sixty-seven of them reported having syphilis. That was in a time when it was really, really bad. Uh, if you got it, uh, penicillin and those things weren't around. Uh, at least a hundred of them were alcoholics. Three hundred of them died prematurely. 280 were paupers, 50 were common prostitutes, 228 were short-term prostitutes, and that's where a lot of the syphilis came in. Uh, 64 of them were in county-run poorhouses. I don't know if you know what a poorhouse is. Sometimes they call them a poor farm. And for several decades, uh, for several centuries in the United States, if you didn't pay your bills and you were totally broke, you were sent to a county facility. We call it workfare today, where you had to go and you lived in a common housing unit, probably on a farm where you worked, did what you could do if you were capable, and then the rest of it was made up by the government. But anyway, a number of them uh, landed up in those kinds of places. 142 of them received state aid, and this is dollars back then. I do not know what that would translate to today, but it'd be way, way more than this. Over a million and a quarter dollars were spent just sponsoring their family. Now, I am not telling you that just because your background was horrible, you can't make good. In fact, as I'll tell you exactly the opposite, because character is based on the choices you make. And so you could say, you don't know what my life was like. You don't know what my family tree is. It's horrible. So you should expect nothing of me. Not true. I know what the Bible says. We can grow, make choices, and change. doesn't matter what your background is. All I know is if you come from a bad background, you have some things to overcome. Decisions to do the right thing might come harder. On the other hand, you might go, hey, I got it made. I'm going to be okay because you ought to see my family tree. Pastors for generations and uh, Christians for ever since anybody can remember. And they, my parents, did a great job. So I can just slide through life. Not true at all. Because again, ultimately, a legacy is based on not what happened in the past, but the choices I make now. As parents, grandparents, great-grandparents that are here today, and future parents and grandparents, the truth is our lives count. Our lives make a difference in the generations to come. If you looked at the life of Cain, he left a legacy. It came about, they were in the field, Cain rose up and he killed his brother Abel. That was the start of his legacy. And that's what was passed on. And as you look through Genesis chapter 4, you find that they accomplished great things just because they were ungodly and left a legacy that was absent of the moral and ethical components that we would look for doesn't mean they didn't accomplish things. When it came to music and fine arts type things, they excelled. When it came to technology, they excelled. They were forging iron and bronze. And in other ways, in agriculture, they did well. But the end was not a good legacy to pass on. 
On the other hand, when we come to Genesis chapter uh, 5, we find that there is a different legacy. It doesn't tell us about their accomplishments because that's not the important thing. You see, in Cain's line, the only accomplishments they had, the only hope of anything good in their lives was here and now, and that's it. That's it. They didn't have anything good to pass on. In our case, we're going to look at a godly legacy started by uh, Seth as he began his life. But I'd like to turn your attention to the last two verses in chapter 4 before we begin. Because it's a prelude to what's going to happen in chapter 5. It says there in Genesis chapter 4 verse 25... Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the setup. And notice how the setup ends. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. If you think about it, you've heard that concept someplace before. If you've ever done anything in evangelism, someone probably taught you the Romans road. And you may have memorized the verses that go with that. And I would encourage you, starting January 7th, we're going to be working on that. The seed sowers class is going to start up. And I encourage you to be a part of that on Wednesday evenings. But... In Romans road, we use Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That concept is not a new one by the Apostle Paul. It comes the whole way back in Genesis chapter 4. Men began to call upon the Lord. They recognized their need for help. It's an act of faith. And that's what they did. Cain's line didn't go there. Cain said, I'm going to do whatever I want. God gave him a second chance. No thanks, God. I'll do it my way. On the other hand, in Seth's line, they began to recognize their need for God. Now, we know it's our need for Jesus Christ. They didn't have all the information we have, but they pointed in that direction. It was a foreshadow of what we needed to know for today. And so let's pick it up now, if you will, in Genesis chapter 5. Beginning a godly legacy. It says in Genesis 5.1, This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man and made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and named them man in the day that they were created. God started with a perfect legacy. Adam and Eve were created perfect. No way to get around that. God created them, and we answer to him for everything we do. But he didn't make them puppets. He didn't make them robots. He didn't make them that they had to do what God said. They had a choice. Of course, you know the story. We've looked at it before. They made the choice to mar that image and that likeness. Now, they were made in the image of God, which means they were personal beings. They had the ability to think and to express emotions and to make decisions, to communicate, to worship, to interact and to fellowship. That's the image part of it. 
They were also in the likeness of God. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you'll find out as soon as he said they were made in his likeness, it goes on to say, and you shall basically be my governors. Those that take on the world and rule the world. And so that likeness has to do with the way God, as Kelly sang, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we are the under lords of God's creation. We are in God's stead to be ruling and reigning in this creation. We are here because he sent us here to be his caretakers of this earth. And so we see it started as a godly legacy. They had to mess it up. But one of the things that we are going to see over and over again as we go through this passage, it's going to end, every one of these, and he died. Why? Because that godly legacy was tainted by rebellion against God. The fall, sin. Adam and Eve sinned and brought the whole world, themselves and the whole world, under a curse. We're going to see that again as we go through um, this passage. So, he created them perfect. They had to really ruin that legacy. And indeed, they did. How does it go on? Well, that godly legacy does continue, but in a flawed way. If you catch anything in the sermon today, this is the part you need to catch. Because starting in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, it says this. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Notice what it says. Adam and Eve were created in God's image and God's likeness. When Seth is coming along, he is in the image of Adam. We call that sin nature. It's that inborn sin nature that we have. We're all under a curse. From the moment of conception, we're under a curse. And so here's what you have. You have a continuing godly legacy. That's what this chapter is about. But it's flawed. It's been tainted by sin. And so that ruling, that likeness, that we are to have over this earth is now not what it should be. Think about it. Today, we have people that go so overboard. They, many of them, and the majority of them, don't believe God is our creator. They are so concerned about environmentalism and air pollution and all those things. By the way, if we're governors of God's earth and caretakers of God's earth, you shouldn't be a hog when you're living on this earth. So don't get me wrong. But the truth of the matter is, that governorship that we've been given has been flawed and tainted very badly by sin. And the, sin is, the world is going downhill. And it is indeed getting polluted and messed up. There's no way to get around that. Why? Because all of those, even the godly line of Seth, has been tainted by sin. And so their rulership over the earth is not what it should have been. And the image of God has been marred. We all all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We no longer fully reflect what God is like in our lives. That's what sin does. And so 
Even as a Christian, we don't fully reflect the glory of God the way we could because of sin. And so, why don't we get along with each other? Sin has tainted it. Why do we have problems? Making the wrong decisions, having the wrong thoughts, not dealing with truth, not dealing with reality. Why do we have those things? Because the image of God has now become flawed. It's been uh, messed up by the sin that indwells us. And Seth, by the way, means a replacement. God is never at his wit's end, says, oh, well, they, they destroyed my godly one. Because remember, Abel did what God asked him to do. Abel was obedient to God. He worshiped God according to God's dictates. Cain did not. So now the only godly legacy to go on is dead. We gives Adam and Eve a replacement. His name is Seth, and we're going to see that. And by the way, the next question... And you've heard this, and people will try to say the Bible makes no sense because where did Cain get his wife, right? How many of you have ever heard that question? Usually in a derogatory way. It's like, oh, well, you believe the Bible, then where did Cain get his wife? Here's the answer right here. It simply says, then the, day, the, then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had... Other sons and daughters. At that time, there wasn't a real issue with the degeneration and all those things that have entered in because of sin. Literally, he married his sister. No problem with that. In fact, is if you follow the Bible, it wasn't until the time of God giving the law where God said, in essence, you can marry pretty much anyone, but they cannot be closer than your first cousin. You can't marry your first cousin or closer. I should have said it that way. Because the degeneration and the deterioration of sin has become stronger. In fact is, why did the people live so long back then? We'll start out by looking at the first part. And that is the process of death and dying was not yet in full-blown mode. If you say, how do you come up with that? Here's how I would come up with that and back that up. By the way, I'm going to give you three of them. I don't think any of them are found directly in the Bible. I believe they're inferred to a certain extent. You can give them the amount of weight you want. That's up to you, but I'm just going to put them before you. The first one is, God said to Adam and Eve, The day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Obviously, he didn't drop dead because he lived hundreds of years after that. The process of dying is exactly that. It's a process. It's ongoing. And as we are deteriorating genetically and in every other way, just remember, we live longer today than they did 100 years ago. And it's not because we're genetically superior. It's because we have great strides in medicine and science and and care and those types of things. Fact is, Moses, when he wrote Psalm chapter 90, he said, if we live to be 70 years old, that's, that's good. If by means of strength, 80, you're you're above and beyond. So even in Moses' day, lifespan had come down to about 70, 80 years old. Today, 
100 years ago in the United States, it was down to around 45, 50 years old. And we're much higher than that now, but not because we're stronger genetically. It took a while for that whole process to take its full effect. The second one is, and this one people debate, and you can take it for what you want, is this. The environment was different before the flood. There is no doubt that the environment was somewhat different than before the flood. How much effect that had on longevity, I really cannot verify. I just believe it's a factor, something to consider. But I believe the last one is the bottom line. And that is, it was God's plan to fill the earth. How do you fill the earth? You have people with long lives and lots of kids. Now, we don't know how many children these people had. It never tells us. It just tells us one. And then it says, and other sons and daughters. So there was a very rapid population expansion during that time. And I believe it was simply part of God's plan to fill the earth. I think the last one is the one that is probably the strongest point. The first one probably being the second strongest point. But it continues on to say that Seth was, I mean, Enosh was the one who began and is a bright spot in this godly legacy. But before we go on, I'd like to see one thing. And I didn't explain this well in the first service. Adam lived, and that's the top kind of orangey line. He lived 930 years. So that's why 930 is in the box. Here's what happens. Because people say, who knows about this Old Testament? You know, it's just passed down. Nobody really knows. It was passed over and over again. How would anybody know it's true? Well, first of all, if you believe what I believe about the Bible, the Bible is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So they need nobody to pass it down. God can just directly give it to the author, uh, the penman of that portion of Scripture. On the other hand, I'd like to show you something. And to me, this was very interesting. If you go down the line the whole way to the second bottom, you'll see Lamech. I have 874 in the box there. Because Adam lived 930 years after creation. He was born 874 years after creation, which means he knew his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam for 56 years before Adam died. So all those generations would have been able to verify that. Can you imagine telling your great-great-great-great-grandparents, children, I'm sorry, that I know what it was like. To live in a perfect garden paradise. The Garden of Eden. I know what Satan looks like when he takes on the form of a serpent. I know what cherubim with flaming swords look like. I know what sin looks like because I saw perfection and then I saw the results and the ruin of sin. Can you imagine Adam having about nine or ten generations where he could repeat that story? You know, even from a human point of view, it's kind of interesting to me. On the other hand, we know that Bible is ultimately by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so these are not necessary. But the whole thing about Enosh is that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. They knew they needed help and they were willing to ask for it. That is faith. Not trusting myself. That's what Cain's legacy did. They accomplished a lot. But Seth's legacy, the godly legacy, are those 
that know their limits and know who they can ultimately and eternally trust. Huge difference between the two. One is good here and now, but one is good for eternity. That's the difference. Of course, uh, they all lived, and as I said, they went on and they had other sons and daughters. But now we have a hope in that flawed legacy. Remember, it's a godly legacy, but it's not what it could have been. Sin has entered in, but we get to Enosh. And it simply says there, and uh, Enoch, I'm sorry, I knew I would do that. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He is the one who made a difference in what was going on. It was a bright uh, light in that whole legacy that they had. What, what is that legacy? A lot of times we think Enoch was just a name in a list of, in a genealogy. Well, wherever God stops and gives them information, we need to stop and get information. Enoch is not only found here, but how many of you have ever heard, don't put your hand up, but ever heard Enoch called a prophet? Well, if you missed one verse in the Bible, you would know, uh, you wouldn't know this, but there is one verse in the Bible that says Enoch was a prophet. You can turn if you would, please, and I'm going to get to it eventually. Jude chapter 1, there is only one chapter, verses 14 and 15. We're going to look at it in, in a little bit of detail. But it also tells us in the hall of faith, that is Jude chapter 1. There is only one chapter, verse 14. But we're going to look now at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. The hall of faith. Those that live by faith that the writer of Hebrews said, these people were an example to you. It says there, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Here is a foreshadow, a picture of something that is going to happen future yet. We have not seen the rapture. It is going to happen. People will be translated up into heaven, believers, without dying. And you say, I don't know. Are you stretching this? The answer is, no, I am not. Because in the Old Testament, there was one more man that had the exact same thing happen to him. His name was Elijah. In the middle of a horrible existence and a horrible sinful time in Israel, he was taken up without dying. Enoch was exactly the same. Both of them being a foreshadow, a picture of what is going to happen in the future. But it doesn't stop as his life being a hope. And that's where I got the hope for. Because, hey, there's more to life than he died. Remember, I told you, every one of these, and he died. But there's more to that. Because Enoch doesn't have, and he died. Because he was taken. He was translated. Taken right out of the earth without dying. Wouldn't that be neat? I have seen and been in the hospital when people were dying. I... Don't look forward to it ever. I know many of them were believers, and I know the moment they died, they were in better shape than they are. They were a moment before that. But the truth of the matter is, that process is not something that's pretty. It just never will be, never could be. 
It's dying. Poof. And we're with the Lord. That's the rapture. We may, get, we may experience that. We may not. We don't know what the timing is. All I know is it was foreshadowed the whole way back in Genesis chapter 5. But there's something else that wasn't foreshadowed by his life, but foreshadowed by his prophecy. And if you're in Jude chapter 1, that's where I am now. Verse 14 says this. It, also, it was also about these men that Enoch... In the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute a judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The prophecy was that God is coming to earth. And he's going to execute judgment. Guess what? His life was a foreshadow of the rapture. And his prophecy is a foreshadow of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he's going to come in power. To rule and to reign. And execute judgment on the nations. Wow! You didn't know Enoch was a prophet. You didn't know that these things which we teach very boldly, are going to happen, we're, are not new to the New Testament. They were foreshadowed the whole way back in the book of Genesis. You say, how do you know that that's going to be true? First of all, we haven't been there, but everything else that the Old Testament prophesied comes true. But in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 14, it says this, And the armies which are in heaven, find, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Guess what? That's the second coming. It's not to be confused with the rapture. In the rapture, people are taken up, just like Enoch, just like Elijah, just like those believers that are alive at that point. They're taken up. The Lord never comes to earth. But in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it simply says this, And they looked upon him, though they pierced. Every eye is going to see him, because he's coming back to judge those who are ungodly. And that's what Enoch's prophecy was. It's going to happen. And Jesus Christ, they didn't know his name was Jesus Christ, he was the Messiah. They didn't know any of those things. They simply knew that it was going to happen. We just have more information. We look forward to the rapture. We also look forward to God restoring that paradise on earth, if you will, uh, during the millennium. One other thing I'd just like to point out. Many times people malign the first chapters of Genesis because they say, well, there were huge gaps in there and there were you know, people that are missing and all those kinds of things. And I know there's all kinds of arguments. But there's something you need to consider. In the New Testament, in Jude chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam. Go back and check it out, and you're going to find out that the New Testament writer is saying, there weren't any skips there. He was the seventh generation from Adam. So just keep that in mind when you hear those kinds of things. And so there is hope in a godly but flawed legacy seen in the life of um, Enoch. But there's also rest 
for those that are in that flawed, flawed legacy of godliness. That person's name is Noah. His name simply means peace or rest. We're going to end with him this morning and then we'll be picking up the next several chapters because they focus on the person and what Noah did. But this morning, it will suffice just to look at that rest. It says there, now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. I like the way the Bible is written. It doesn't leave you high and dry. It just tells you, Noah is this, the one who's going to give you rest from the toil of your hands and from the ground which God has cursed. You notice that word cursed keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up. Why? Because we deal with sin over and over and over again. That's why Christ had to come. He didn't come because it was just a good idea. He came because we were in a desperate circumstance. We needed redemption. We needed rest from our sin. Noah pictures that rest uh, when he comes on the scene. In fact, is it goes on to say that... Uh, He became, and this is verse 32, he became the father of Shem and Ham and Jephthah. Those that repopulated the world after the flood. But I'd like to finish off today by looking at what the New Testament says about Noah. And the time of Noah. To set the stage for what's going to happen in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. It says in first Peter, second Peter chapter two, verse five, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So notice the flood is definitely a judgment on ungodliness. But in the midst of that, there was one person, the one whose name literally means peace or uh, quiet and to bring rest, Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness. And you go, so what's the big deal? Noah, unfortunately, lived in a time much like the United States today. In my lifetime, I'm 62 years old, almost 63. Some of you are way older than I am, so you'll go, and you don't know the half of it. In my lifetime, we have seen the world go down A step at a time, a step at a time. But usually it's a little like this. And we don't even get shocked by most things. It's just not shocking anymore. Fifty years ago, if some of the things that happened in the last several years would have happened, people, Christians would have been outraged. They they, they just would have been at their wit's end. Now it's like, one more thing fell. One One more sin is now okay. Because in the midst of a complacent people, Noah took a stand. For 120 years, he preached that they needed to repent. He was a preacher of righteousness. Righteousness has to do with meeting a standard. He was preaching God's standard. That was godliness. Say, how do you come up with the idea that Things were just going on as usual. Matthew chapter 24. Maybe you never saw it this way before, but I challenge you to 
consider it this morning. Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 37, says this, For the coming of the Son of Man, that is his coming back to earth, not the rapture, will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Business as usual. But I also know what chapter 6 of Genesis says, that the intent of their heart was continually evil. But yet, people didn't react to it. It wasn't horror, shock. It wasn't that. Truth is, the church in the United States fits this. The culture of the United States fits this. And pretty much the culture of the world. It takes something explosive to get us to be shocked today. Because we're so used to the downward slide of sin. People just, business as usual, eating, drinking, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. You know, what's the big deal? Hey, let's get married. That's, you know, given marriage. All of those things, just the normal everyday activities. We've very easily become complacent. When you become complacent, you will not be leaving a legacy that you wish to leave. But there's one last thing. Noah is also found in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 7. By faith, notice again, by faith, he's trusting God. Noah being warned by God about the things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You see, Noah building the ark was an object lesson. Going into the ark sealed their fate. That's what it says, by which he condemned the world. Noah wasn't going around, you're condemned. He was saying, no, God is righteous and his ways are righteous. And he proved it by being obedient and building an ark. And I cannot imagine, I'd like to... You know, do some sanctified imagination here and say, you know, how the people just made fun of him and laughed at him and just thought he was crazy. I'm going to guess that happened. Can't prove that, but it's sure what it seems like to me. And so it says that when he went into the ark, he basically condemned the world. Why? Because he was obedient to God. In the face of the complacency around him, in, the, in, play, in face of the evil around him, he still did what was right, and he spoke what was right. He did both of them, and he did it by faith. You cannot live as a Christian in this world on your own power. It has to be faith in God. Only God working in you and through you. Only trusting Him can you live and leave a godly legacy. And notice what it says at the very end. And he became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. You see, his life proved what he believed. He didn't just preach righteousness. He lived it. You want to leave a legacy for those following you? Don't just talk the talk. Don't just say, we're going to church today. But live it before them. Every single day, every hour, every interaction, every opportunity. That's how you leave a legacy. That's what Noah had to do. We have some great pictures of what God is going to do. We have a a great example here 
of leaving a legacy. I don't want my legacy to resemble Cain's. Hey, they had lots of money and they had great positions and power. And, (laughs) but are they going to be with God in all eternity? Is their life going to count? Are they going to pass on righteousness? Are they going to speak righteousness? Are they going to live righteousness? That's the important part. See, there's, I'm, I'm sure they did all the technological things too, but that is so insignificant compared to the moral, ethical, and spiritual implications of leaving a godly legacy. That's my prayer. That's my challenge. That's my encouragement to you. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Father, what a great, great God you are. And Lord, you have never been shy in telling us the way it is. You've given us a very stark contrast from the very beginning of the Bible of living for you and leaving a godly legacy as opposed to rebelling and not repenting and leaving an ungodly, rebellious legacy. I pray that all of us would do everything in our power And trust you every step of the way to live in such a way that we leave our children and our children's children a legacy to follow. Lord, help us. We thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Go with God.